Well, good morning, church. My name is Derek. I'm one of the pastors here at Third. This summer, we have been working through a series called Songs for the Journey. It's a series rooted in the Psalms of Ascent. And these Psalms have met us in the place that we find ourselves as a church. We are third church in diaspora. We are scattered and displaced physically. We are scattered and displaced emotionally. And we are scattered spiritually as well. And even though the pandemic has brought much of the world to a screeching halt, the journey of discipleship continues. Life with God continues. Life with community continues. The life of mission continues. And these Psalms are our playlist on the road. And so if we have ears to hear, if we have ears to hear, church, they can teach us how to live, love, struggle, fail, even flourish as disciples of Jesus. Today we're looking at Psalm 131, the trusting song. Uh, it's been said that people do not fear change, they fear loss. They don't resist change, they resist loss. And all of us have lost something during this pandemic. One of the real losses for us as a family has been how few guests that we have had in our house, inside our home, since this pandemic started. We believe that hospitality is central to the heart of God. Our house is, is purposefully constructed to welcome strangers uh, so that they become guests and part of our spiritual household. And uh, this, this pandemic has significantly disrupted that for us as a family. And like all of you, we have developed our own ways of dealing and coping with that stress. Uh, the Mondus have embraced what we call rage-scaping, uh, which is short for rage landscaping, a cousin to rage cleaning for those of you that are rage cleaners out there. Um, you know, if you prune a plant or a bush, you cut back parts of it uh, so that new things can grow in, in its place. So we decided that we would just prune our entire backyard. Um, and so it's been, it's been a long process. Now, right now, four months later, our backyard has been transformed. It has become a place that is uh, as welcoming as the inside of our home was. But depending on when you visited us uh, during that process, it, it might not have looked like we were growing anything in that backyard. Actually, it, it could have looked, because it did, uh, like we were destroying everything, uh, because we were. I mean, there were times where there were 20 foot by 20 foot just nasty you know, blanket square of dirt because we had to pull up all the grass by hand. And by we, I mean Sue, primarily. She's the rage landscaper in our home. Uh, I, people would come over, you know, and, uh, and it would still be just kind of in disrepair, but, uh, but that's okay. There were times where uh, there were tarps all over the backyard just held in by bricks. Um, and if you had seen our yard at that point in time, you would think to yourself, they're ruining it. But, what, but, was, but you wouldn't know what was true, which is actually we weren't ruining the backyard. We were actually helping it to flourish. That pruning was helping it to grow so that new and beautiful things could grow there. Psalm 131 is like that. Psalm 131 is a pruning psalm. It's a snapshot into the inner life of a disciple, someone who is a God follower, someone whose heart has already been pruned. We get access to the interior life of someone that has found the abiding peace of trust in God. And he invites us on that journey. Here, here's the big idea for today. Disciples learn to glory in their limitations because our limitations are gateways to trusting faith. 
Disciples learn to glory in their limitations because they are gateways to trusting faith. We're going to explore those two elements together, glory in our limitations and gateways to trusting faith. This psalm starts with a really strong warning against prideful ambition. I'm not trying to rule the roost, he said. I don't want to be king of the mountain. I'm not meddling where I don't belong. I don't have grandiose plans that are too great for me. Now, every culture has values in that culture that are roadblocks to those of us who are trying to live out the gospel reality. Our culture in particular encourages and rewards ambition almost without qualification. We are surrounded by a way of life that is defining flourishing as increasing expansion, increasing acquisition, increasing fame, increasing power. And it can be difficult to see how prideful ambition in our culture is a sin because it is kind of superficially related to a virtue called aspiration. Aspiration is, is a discontent with the mediocre. It's, um, it, it's like a hoping trust in, in all of the good things that God has for you, a hopeful striving for God's best. And what, what, what prideful ambition does is this, is it takes that redemptive energy of aspiration and it bends it, it distorts it towards self-worship. Corey uh, gave you this uh, book by a guy named David Paulson um, on Psalm 131. And to help us understand this aspect, uh, Paulson does something great in this little uh, book. He writes an anti-psalm. And I think we have the, the text up for you. This is, I want to read it for you, the anti-psalm 131. It starts off, self, my heart is proud. I'm absorbed in myself. And my eyes are haughty. I look down on others. And I chase after things too great and too difficult for me. So, of course, I'm noisy and restless inside. It comes naturally. Like a hungry infant fussing on his mother's lap. Like a hungry infant, I'm restless with demands and worries. I scatter my hopes uh, into and onto anything and everything all the time. Anti-Psalm 131. That hurts good, doesn't it, church? That hurts good. I, uh, I texted Corey and I was like, I, I, uh, I think I repented a few times reading this this week. It's, it's good. The, the phrase that really, I think, um, captured me first was that, um, of course, I'm noisy and restless inside. And that's one of the ways that we see prideful ambition. It's through that stress and anxiety that captures our hearts. Um, how do we know if prideful ambition has gripped us, we can ask this question. What is your interior life like? Is it restless? Is it noisy? What happens in prideful ambition is that we break under a weight that we were never meant to bear. We break under the weight of our own godhood. When we think that we have more power than we actually have, when we think that we have more control than we actually have, then what happens is the branches of our heart, they start to grow in all of these unhealthy directions. The noise, the static inside our hearts, the stress, it gets turned up to 11. So what is the noise that is going on inside of you? What branch needs to be pruned back? Which part of you is growing out of control? I want to ask these four questions that Paulinson 
asks uh, in his reflection on Psalm 131. Where do you raise up ladders of achievement? How do you go for it? Go for the victory, go for grades, go for the promotion, go for the big church, go for the idealized Christian life. Where do you clamor up ladders of acquisition? If only you could get a little bit more, a little bit more security, a little bit more recognition. Where do you race up ladders of appetite? This one is extremely painful for me personally. (laughs) How do you gratify your need for ease? I've been eating uh, a good amount of Buffalo Wild Wings in the last uh, month. Have not had Wild Wings for 10 years. But, but my appetite and all the stress has, uh, has taken over. But where are you racing up ladders of appetite? Gratifying hunger or lust, superiority, the need to be in control or the need to be understood? Where do you scuttle up ladders of avoidance? How are you getting away from poverty, from rejection, from suffering, from people? Achievement, acquisition, appetite, avoidance. Where are these things at work in your life? This psalm says to us, don't abandon the glorious limitation of being someone made in God's image. Instead, glory in those limitations. Receive them as gifts of grace. Because in doing so, you will prune back the weeds of prideful ambition from your soul. We also glory in our limitations. It's, it's not just about pruning selfish ambition. It's also about the cultivation of contentment. I have been kept, uh, I've kept my feet on the ground. I have cultivated a quiet heart like a weaned child, a baby content in its mother's arms. So is my soul. And so the opposite of prideful ambition in this text is not lazy um, purposelessness. The opposite of prideful ambition is contentment. It's contentment. It's beautiful. This man is not noisy inside. He isn't obsessed with the next thing. He isn't on edge. He's not consumed by the demands of work or of his relationships or of his home. Crushing anxiety, it's not creeping into every moment of silence that he gets in his life. Anger isn't gnawing at his heart. His passions are not ruling him so that they drive him to the next experience, the next drink, the next addiction. Fear is not the soundtrack of this man's soul. He is quiet, he's calm, and he is centered. And this this passage has a lot to teach us about contentment. Um, Just two things real quick. Contentment is, is about relationship primarily. Um, And uh, we're going to look at um, the image of the weaning child that's used in this part of the text for teaching us about contentment. Um, I've got two sons. They're seven and ten. They both were breastfed, and during the breastfeeding years, uh, my wife Sue gave herself uh, a nickname. She referred to herself as the source. That's that's how she referred to herself. My wife has a great... I am not a mom. I am the source. Uh, And when you ask her what she most remembers about her relationship with our boys during those years, uh, when they were breastfeeding, she'll say this. Exactly, It was transactional. It wasn't about me. It was about what I could produce for them. Uh, qu- quote, unquote, uh, I was a machine, not a mom. Right? It's transactional. 
But something happens differently in the life of a wean child. A wean child trades that physical dependence, right, for something else. He, he trades that physical dependence upon the mother for relationship with the mother. A wean child is the one that is content to sit in his mother's presence, to enjoy her, to be with her. The psalmist is saying to us, this is what he's saying, just like a weaned child, I don't want God's stuff. I want God's presence. My comfort doesn't come from what God can do for me. My comfort comes from his presence. Contentment is, is fully about relationship. Contentment is also the fruit of consistent and sometimes painful work. I think a lot of us as Christians think that this should be something that's easy for us. It's not. Um, let's stick with that image of the weaning process. To get to the place of contentment for that child, it is, it is painful and, and it involves much suffering. It is not a smooth process. I don't think we were the only ones. I can say very clearly, when that happened both times in our house, it was a bit of a hot mess. I mean, uh, Sue's screaming, the kids are screaming, I'm screaming. Um, it, is, it, is not, it is not an easy process. It is difficult. So many families don't talk about this. It can sometimes take weeks. There are fits and starts in weaning a child. We had some friends in Charlottesville. It took them years, years. And when it finally happened, we threw a party for them. It was a party for the whole family. Um, all of that is to say, this is why this image is like so important for us. It's something really, really important for us. All growth is pain. All transition, all growth is pain. And that is true of spiritual growth too. It is always painful. My sons are going through a new round of growing pains because they're just, they're growing up tall like their mom and dad. And um, you know, the, their bones as they stretch, I mean, they can't sleep sometimes for hours at night. Um, if any of you've done weight training before, your muscle fibers are literally torn apart right, so that they can be rebuilt to be Stronger. The same is true for us spiritually. Our spiritual growth, the growth that comes, leads to contentment, is often through a time of great trial and difficulty and stretching. So don't be surprised, church, if, if it's no easy thing to quiet yourself, to quiet your soul, to cultivate contentment. It can be a pitched battle. You know, um, there's one of my favorite quotes by one of my favorite preachers, a man named Gardner Taylor. Um, has been an encouragement for me in the midst of that difficulty of spiritual growth. He says this, there are days when we can bring before God laughter of joy and gratitude. There will be other days when we can only muster a bitter, angry complaint. Be confident that God will accept whatever we lift up before him and he will make it serve his purpose and our good. Amen? Here, here, here's the critical thing in this part of the text, it's so beautiful. In order to grow into a healthy human child, that child has to find new ways to relate to the mother. If that doesn't happen, that child's growth and development is stunted. The same thing is true for us. In order to grow as healthy disciples, we need to find new ways to relate to God. I'm gonna suggest just two. Two that have been critical in, in my life. There are many others that have helped cultivate contentment. The first is silent prayer. And so this is what silent, I've been to silent prayer for about 10 years. And I, I hated it when I started doing it. And I still, I still hate it sometimes to this day. Uh, 
but here's what silent prayer is. You simply find a place that's quiet, that's away. You could do it when you're walking. You can do it in your home. And you can find any place. And all you do is you sit down. And I pray a prayer something like this. God, the most important thing that I'm going to do today is to just shut up and enjoy your presence. And then just wait silently for 15 minutes and sit in God's presence. That's, that's silent prayer. You can start at five minutes to start because it's going to feel really uncomfortable. But what happens, this is a way to train you to not be active in God's presence, to just enjoy him, to be like a weaned child. I'm not even reading the Bible in that moment. And I promise you, brothers and sisters, the spirit of God will come and he will fill that space. It may take a few days to get through all the stuff that comes into your head and the noisiness of your heart, but it's a new way to relate to your father that prioritizes presence and contentment, just being with him. The second is the practice of saying no. And so many of us don't have the opportunity in our schedules to be able to take even 10 or 15 minutes aside to sit with the Lord. And so the practice of saying no is you take your calendar, you sit down with your spouse, your best friend, whoever's going to hold you the most accountable, and you carve out an hour a week. It doesn't have to all be at the same time. And in the words of my wife, that's time that you just waste with God. <laughs> it's just time that you waste with him. And so, so those are just two small steps that we can start to take. Silent prayer, just sit in God's presence and, and be with him. And, and the practice of saying no, if, if, if that alone feels so overwhelming, then there's a practice where you can start creating some margin in your schedule to prioritize God's presence uh, in your life. So that's disciples learning to glory in their limitations. They, we cut off selfish ambition. We cultivate uh, contentment. And the reasons that we do this, the last line of the text tells us, is because our limitations are gateways to hope, gateways to trusting faith. Wait with hope, Israel, together. Hope now, hope always. I love the, the NIV. It says, Israel, hope in the Lord now and forever. So what the psalm is telling us at the end is that the contented soul waits, not with anxiety, but with hope. Hope. And hope is the ultimate act of trusting faith. Here is what hope is. It is believing that God is who he says he is and that God will do what he has promised to do. It's, it's believing in God and believing in God's promises. It's the trust of contentment that we just talked about. It's that trust of contentment applied to the future. I'll be honest, um, church, this has not been easy for me in this uh, season. I have struggled uh, during this season uh, with what... Um, the anti-Psalm 131 characterized as scattering my hopes onto anybody or anything all the time. Um, I feel it when I'm driving home from work usually because um, my two sons, <laughs> it's like a 50% chance they've tried to kill one another at some point in the day. Um, they did good for the first couple months, but it's, it's, a, it's a long time to ask two kids to just be stuck with each other. And I feel it, uh, I'll pray on the way home, and I actually, it's not really the prayer that's making a difference. It's, I'm thinking in my mind, if I come home and everything's calm and Sue's not overwhelmed, I'm going to be okay tonight. Isn't that crazy? 
Like, I, I feel like in this season, I have been so much more dependent on other people's emotional reactions around me in order for me to believe that I'll be okay, that God will take care of me, that, that I could come into that space as a dad and bring some hope or some joy or some love that maybe everybody needs. And instead I'm like, please don't, don't make my day harder. <laughs> you know, um, I've struggled with that, scattering my hopes. I mean, I, I see this every, everywhere. Um, I was listening to a podcast a couple weeks ago and um, the newscaster said with a straight face, a vaccine will save us. A vaccine will restore us. And I just started laughing out loud. I just was like, oh my gosh, those hopes are going to be dashed so badly. Like that's, again, that, that's a God-sized weight that we're putting on a vaccine. Our problems are bigger than that. Trusting faith is hoping in the Lord. And this is what it means for us. Trusting faith is, is living like the end of our story is true. We know the end of the story as Christians. This is one of the gifts of the book of Revelation, which we'll be studying in the fall. The end of our story ends with the new heavens and the new earth coming down and Jesus Christ renewing the entire creation. About 10 years ago, I um, contracted what are called cluster headaches or suicide headaches. Um, They are ranked as one of the most painful things human beings can experience. Um, I, I can attest to that. What would happen is I would just be going about my life and then one of my eyes would start to water, tear uncontrollably. And within 15 or 20 seconds, I'd have the physical sensation um, of an ice pick being jabbed through my eye. It was horrible. They are, they come on fast. There's nothing you can do. You can't compose yourself. You just kind of collapse and start responding to it. Um, unfortunately, I had a chronic version um, of, of clusters. So for two years, almost eight hours a day, um, I would experience that for about 40 minutes. And then I'd have maybe, you know, 30 minutes off and then 40 minutes again. And um, often during that season, Sue would come in. I would be fetal on the bed, crying usually. And um, I would say to her, um, She'd say, baby, what can I do for you? And I would say to her, um, tell me the end of the story again. I just would say, tell me the end of my story again. And she would read these words. She would read, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among people. And he will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, I am making all things new. My limitations, um, they were gifts of grace. I can say that because they were gateways to hope. I have never hoped in the resurrection of Jesus before or after as much as I did during those two years. My story could not end in death, could not end in this suffering. And the truth is I've been in remission for seven years. I mean, if you get chronic suicide headaches, they will come back. I'm, I'm, scared. I'm scared. I'll be honest. I'm fearful. My sons have never seen me in that, that state. And, um, but I, I know, I know 
uh, I know that those limitations, if they come back, I, I hope that what we've learned will, will continue to be true of us as a family, that, that we will glory even then in the limitations that brings to us because they will be gateways for us to trusting faith. That's the hope for us as disciples, the, the one who left heaven for us, the one who was born for us, who lived for us, who died for us, who was raised for us, ascended for us, who reigns at God's right hand for us, is the same one. That one who we put our trust in is the one who is making all things new. That's, that's, the, that's the big idea of this psalm, is that disciples learn to glory in their limitations because their limitations are gateways to trusting faith. Let us pray. Father, we confess that um, often our lives are too great for us. We confess that we have hearts bent towards selfish ambition. We confess that we, in our pride, in our desire to control, in our desire to succeed, uh, we often reject you as the God over our life, and we seat ourselves upon that throne. And so we ask this morning that you would extend your grace and your mercy to us, that you would help us to be men and women who prune ambition from our hearts and that we receive the limitations that you have given to us as men and women made in your image as the gift that it is and that we would be content to hope and to trust in you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.